Namaste and good evening to all of you. We are continuing tonight with the reading of the precepts from the yoga of the disciple from Tibetan yoga. I have selected some of the most eloquent chapters from this collection of 28 chapters of teachings. And last time we had started the 13th chapter, which is called the 13 Grievous Failures. And we had commented upon the first two of them. As I told you in this chapter, Tibetan gurus teach about pathetic failures on the spiritual path. And uh, they on purpose put the word grievous from the beginning, like they make things emphasized, they push the envelope a little bit, they use a bit of sarcasm and sense of humor in a very uncompromising style. The third of the so-called grievous failures in the view of Tibetan yogis reads as follows. To dwell with a sage and remain in ignorance is to be like a man dying of thirst on the shore of a lake and this is a grievous failure. You can realize how many sages, men and women of great wisdom have lived on the surface of this earth. Although wisdom is a rare thing, there have been some, some people in a very, very speculative way trying to calculate the number of inhabitants from Shambhala or the number of enlightened beings in a cycle, in a yuga, and so on, they came up with numbers like there may have been 150,000 enlightened beings in this yuga, or there may be 150 enlightened beings in Shambhala, or something like this. It's not important if the number is accurate, but if there have been 150 enlightened beings living at different times on the face of this earth, what happened to their mothers, fathers, brothers, sisters, friends, life partners, neighbors, and so on and so forth? It is very interesting that many people lived with Ramana Maharishi, Many people even admired greatly Ramana Maharishi, but they did not <coughs> remove their ignorance. Ramakrishna himself was having his nephew, a member of his family, to help him. And all this nephew could do, he was supposed to take care of the needs of Ramakrishna, Although Ramakrishna was already a married man and like his food was traditionally as in India cooked by his wife and of course she was cleaning their private premises and this. So it was not really much that this Hridai, his name was Hridai, funny, almost ridiculous that he was called Hridai which means the heart 
full one. And actually everybody living in that area acknowledged that this Hridai was a pain in the neck. He often was an asshole. There is an author of the life of Ramakrishna that even says that Ramakrishna at some point was almost pushed to desperation by the actions of Hridai, who was behaving like a bastard. This is, according to Tibetan yoga, a pathetic failure. To dwell with Ramakrishna in the same house, in the same ashram, in the same compound, and to remain in ignorance, to remain as a person that is ruled by the bitter things of the world, by the sel selfish, narrow things of the world, is such a failure. Like people who have never seen a sage in their lives, from whom should they have learned? Maybe they read something in a book, and then they shrug their shoulders and they say, right, but where are people like that? They don't make people like that anymore. I did not encounter anybody. Then those people look around and they say, look around. Everybody is selfish. Everybody is ignorant. Like that, that's, It's normal for them to copy. The peer pressure is enormous. It's normal for them to copy the standards of the world. But actually to live with a Shivananda, to live with a Rumi, to live with a Buddha, to live with a Teresa of Avila, to live with a Sarada Devi or with a Mirabai, and not to get it, not to get at least some freedom from ignorance, the Tibetans simply present an absurd image. It's like to be like a man dying of thirst on the shore of a lake. If somebody would die of thirst on the shore of a lake, even if you are a very compassionate person, you would tend to laugh and to say, this is too much, you know, like this is a moron. Can't figure out this thing. The Tibetans use a very acute comparison for those who dwell with sages and remain in ignorance. How many monasteries, how many ashrams, how many dwellings where a very wise man or a very wise woman lived and people remained in ignorance? You don't even need to go to ashrams and to monasteries. How many of the people who lived in the same time with Socrates in Athens became wise and removed their ignorance? On the contrary, they found Socrates so disturbing to their bourgeois ways that they condemned Socrates to drink poison rather than they change their ways. This is the third statement which simply says there is a function, an implicit, it's not necessarily an aimed function, but there is a function to the existence of wise men and wise women in this world. They serve as inspiration. They serve as beacons of light. They are like lighthouses that shine in the dark. And it is a pity that in a Kali Yuga especially, there will be a shining Teresa of Avila and a shining Rumi, and people still would not see 
and would not say, look, there is there something. People can see that super rich did not reach happiness, that super powerful did not reach happiness, that workaholics and career people and family people do not reach happiness. And then when Ramana Maharishi says it's possible to reach bliss and I have reached it and you can have it too. It is your birthright. It doesn't take as much time as to educate yourself to become a medical doctor. You know, it takes less years than a full curriculum of study and all that. And yet people say that they want to be happy. They say they want to reach happiness. But where is it? Whom have you seen that says... I have reached bliss. Buddha says, I have reached bliss. And he says it took him whatever, six years or several years, 12 years, whatever, of full commitment to his goal. Happiness exists. There are men and women who clearly state that they found it in several years of constant focusing after it. And yet... People complain that there is no happiness and nobody is really happy and all that. This is the very function of wisdom, of the physical presence of the sages. That is why the sages, both men and women, they have a particular importance in this world because they serve as guiding lights. When Jesus was born, the immediate thought of the local Jewish king was to kill him. Exterminate the baby because this vermin of a baby is going to grow up into a Messiah. Maybe you can't touch him when he is the Messiah. Touch him when he is in the cradle. Exterminate him. And if we are to believe the story in the Bible, thousands or even 20,000 infants were put to death in the absurd hope to catch in this death, in this net of murder, to catch Jesus himself. Which, through divine providence, this thing failed. It just left a horrible crime, a genocidal horrible crime on the face of of humanity and on the face of that diabolic satanic king because that's worse than just evil the name evil does not apply to such a person anymore we are talking about which is pertaining to satan himself and of course the inspiration according to the shamans this man was under possession when he took such a decision it was not he himself who took the decision. It was the horrendous telepathic energetic pressure of powerful demonic diabolic dark entities <clears throat> which were simply trying to say if now at this time a being like Jesus was born on earth, let's take him out early. Let's nip him in the bud because later he is going to do us lots of damage this one. So, of course, when you look at the world from the standpoint of the struggle between light and darkness, we live in a war zone where lightness casts away the darkness, 
but darkness does not go away without some struggle. And that is why this statement from Tibetan yoga shows that there is a very powerful influence of the sages. The Tibetans don't say that, well, living like this, if you do not, if you remain in ignorance, that's a grievous failure. But they say, if you live in the presence of a sage, man or woman, and still you remain in ignorance, that is pretty pathetic. Because, like, what more can you ask than that? <clears throat> that is why the Buddhist gurus say that, first of all, to be able to reach enlightenment, the very first condition is that in, watch, in whichever, in whatever world you live, in that world before you, there should have been born a Buddha, and that Buddha should have preached his teaching. If that is true, then in that world there exists the opening, the possibility for reaching a state of spiritual realization. That is also why when they present the most terrible karmic errors, which are the most horrendous karmic errors according to the Tibetan lamas, there are, if I remember correctly, seven of them, and some of them are such as to kill your mother, to kill your own mother. And one of them, one of those seven, which is, these are karmic mistakes which produce such a horrendous karma that they can't even compare. Milarepa killed 35 people, that's not on the list. To, multi, to kill multiple numbers of people is not on the highest list. There are things which are worse than that. And one of the seven list things on that list is not to kill, to shed the blood of a Buddha. To shed the blood of a Buddha, which means just to wound a Buddha, is an error which is terrible. It will entail karma which will follow one for lives and lives and these are sometimes those tormented souls that can find no happiness. The souls that are suffering from irreversible mental disease. Sometimes you see people in the darkness of schizophrenia and other severe mental afflictions. And you know, in this life, exception made, they meet with Jesus himself. They will not get away. They will not be free and there is not a beam of light there is not a light in the end of the tunnel there is no hope in sight for this lifetime and therefore this is the kind of karma which comes from blasphemy from anti-divine actions from things which are even worse than killing and the likes of them and that is why to see the value of this wisdom, Tibetan spirituality places among the seven most grievous mistakes that a human being can do in a lifetime to shed the blood of a Buddha. I'm moving to the fourth of the pathetic failure, grievous failures. Four, 
to know the moral precepts in yoga that will be translated as yama and niyama. To know the moral precepts and not to apply them to transcend the obscuring passions is to be like a diseased man carrying a bag of medicine which he never uses. And this is a grievous failure. Again, an irony in, is used. A diseased man carrying a bag of medicine and not using it. Like how stupid can one be? How moronic you have to be to be sick, to have the bag with medicine and not to use it. The bag of med so the Tibetans use pretty cruel comparisons, pretty merciless comparisons. Like people who say, well, you should have pity on the person that is sick and doesn't even realize he carries a bag with medicine. The Tibetans are beyond this political correctness. They simply say, if a sick man carries a bag of medicine and doesn't use it, that's just pathetic. The same thing is here. The moral precepts, yama and niyama, are the cure for transcending the obscuring passions. In the Buddhist view, human beings stay in samsara and suffer. They are blinded. They go like a squirrel in a cage. They just like are like moths plunging into the flame, like a moth plunging into a flame and thus burning themselves to death because of what is called in an English translation here, obscuring passions, which tells us that there are passions which are not obscuring. For example, Rumi says, Oh God, I love you passionately. Yes, you can love, with God, lo love God with passion. That's a lovely passion. It's not obscuring. That's a liberating passion. That's an enlightening passion. And may all of you be blessed with such a passion. To have a passion for light, to have a passion to reach Shambhala, to have a passion for enlightenment, to have a passion for the truth, to be in love with your cosmic father and mother, it's fantastic. That passion is legitimate. You hear and there hear ignorant people claiming that, oh, you shouldn't have passion even for spirituality. That's bollocks, because then bhakti yoga, surrender, devotionalism and others could never exist. It is perfectly legitimate to have passion towards the divine. To love God is not an obscuring passion. But then there are the obscuring passions in which instead of going for the eternal, you invest in things which are inferior. In this life, as we explain into the Agama lecture about Jivatman, the soul, the individual soul, very much it is like you are investing energy. You have enthusiasm, and the question is, in what do you put your enthusiasm? You put your enthusiasm into things that give something back to your soul. Every time when you are enthusiastic about something, it's like you pour a little drop of your soul into that. It is exactly like you have ojas, 
the basic vitality in the low chakras and you pour ojas into the fire of life and you live, you move, you are biologically possible. And then there is another ojas-like thing, which is the ojas of your soul, the vitality of the soul, which is an alternative name for jivatman. Jivatman can sometimes be considered the vitality of the soul. And you invested one of the greatest, one of the first constructors of airplanes at the time where airplanes was just some experimental machines. There was no production aircraft industry or anything. The f- one of the first pioneers of the aircraft industry who built some 23 airplanes, handmade airplanes that took off in his life. In one of his engineering books he says, with an airplane, with an aircraft, if you don't put enthusiasm and heart, he uses the word soul. He says, if you don't put your soul into building it, it won't take off. It won't fly. Like everything is done with passion. People put passion into creating a new automobile. The car designers from the big companies, they are fanatics of cars, beauty, design of cars and others. You, to create a rock band and to make it work and play music, you have to put soul into it. The only, to, to raise a child, you have to put soul into it, especially if you want to be a responsible parent. The question is, In so many things in life, in each and every one of them you have to put soul. Making a family, raising a child, cultivating a relationship, designing aircraft and automobiles, playing music, painting paintings, like just see the movie, The Agony and the Ecstasy on the life of Michelangelo and you will see in what terrible conditions Michelangelo painted the Sistine Chapel. Today everybody goes and says, oh, great art. But the man who painted that great art almost got blind in the process because of paint was dropping in his eyes because he had to paint on his back and so on. That man ruined his health for years and years to paint. He had to put something into it. If you don't put something into it, you won't do anything great. Nothing can be great with no effort, just like this, and accidentally you stumble onto greatness. A Latin proverb even says it, per aspera ad astram, on arduous ways to reach to the stars. It takes arduous footpaths to reach to the stars. Um, What I'm trying to say here, actually, is there is always need for investing soul. And your soul is limited. You have only that much soul. How much soul can you have in your life? For how many things do you have enthusiasm? In how many things can you put time, energy, enthusiasm? And then one day you are getting old, tired, you have not enough vitality. And then it's very difficult to put soul because your enthusiasm has gone low. It is an investment, really. All of you, or most of you, come from a capitalistic world, 
and at least this much is known, you learn it in school, that with money, if you invest them wisely, you are going to get some returns on it, and if you just spend them chaotically, you are going to be financially burned out. It is the same with the soul. What are people investing their souls into? Because the yogis and the spiritualists of Tibet as well, they found out that you can invest your soul in things which give a great reward. It is the parable of the sowing seeds of Jesus, who said there was this man throwing seeds, and some of the seeds fell, fell on fertile ground, some of the seeds fell on the rocks, some of the th seeds fell on the side of the road, and then there is a very different fate to those seeds. The seeds that fell on a fertile ground, they sprouted and then each seed produced a hundred seeds. Like in wheat, you plant one seed, but then the wheat produces a hundred seeds. So it's a hundredfold productivity. Some seeds fell on the side of the road and some of them sprouted, some of them didn't. And those that sprouted didn't fare very well because the land was very dense and they couldn't really grow very nicely. And then the seeds which fell on the rocks, they couldn't sprout at all, and they got eaten by the birds of the sky, and then there was zero. So therefore, when you invest something like sowing seeds, sometimes you get hundredfold result, Sometimes you get, you break even, you barely break even, and sometimes you lose. It's the same with the soul. We put our soul into things. No, but what do we get out of those? And of course, spiritualists say, that's one of the favorite statements of Jesus, and, but not only, that if you put your soul into the spiritual quest, you are going to be rewarded plentifully, although in the beginning it seems like you are losing everything, and that's like an ultimate test of trust and confidence. If you put your, your faith, your hope in God, then maybe when you get to be 50 years old like Ramakrishna, you say, what have I got? I've been a hippie and a hysterical mystic all my life. I didn't really do anything. I didn't have children. I didn't go having fun. I did not do this. I did not do that. What did I get out of this life? Because this spiritual thing seems to be so immaterial. Everybody looks at you and mocks you and says, what? What have you got? You are a loser. You aren't able to rub two pennies together. What have you done? You're just sitting there and praying. To whom are you praying? We can't see anybody. We can't hear anybody. You claim that you feel something when you pray, but maybe you are just mentally sick. Maybe it's self-suggestion. Maybe it's a very subjective thing. <coughs> and thus, what have you got? And yet the spiritualists say that going through this door of standing to lose everything and surrendering totally, you stand to lose, to win everything. Even Jesus says, seek ye first the kingdom of heaven and then all the rest, all the rest shall be given to you hundredfold. 
Like if you find the kingdom of heaven and then after you want children, material comfort, whatever, you can have plenty of that afterwards. You will have more power and efficiency than anyone else in the world because you have a connection with the author of the universe and you can pretty much do many, many things which normal people can't even hope to do. But the priorities have to be right. First there comes the horse and then there comes the cart. If you yoke the cart in front of the horse, it won't work. That is why this great British philosopher aptly said, quoted in the Agama course, courses, said, if you don't give to God the first place in your life, you don't give God any place. Because the divine reality can only have the first place. It won't put up with anything less, not because God won't put up with anything less, but because your own subconscious mind transforms it into a hypocrisy and a false thing. Your subconscious mind knows the root reality, the absolute reality, always deserves to be first because that's the very root of our existence as consciousness. As Abhinava Gupta says, if Shiva would not exist as consciousness, neither would we or the whole universe, because then everything would be something blind and lifeless, and there would be no enjoyment, there would be no subject to taste, the taste of the universe. Everything is possible, existence itself is possible due to the existence of the supreme conscious subject, which is the consciousness of God. And that is why the priorities have to be clear. And thus in spirituality we say there are investments of soul which bring you even more soul like a grain of wheat which becomes a hundred grains of wheat. And that is when you give your soul to God. That's just an act of faith because the divine consciousness has no use for your soul since to start with your soul came from the divine. And the fact that you give it back, you surrender it, is just an act of conscious surrender. And then you get rewarded hundredfold. Then there are things which sometimes give reward, sometimes not. Sometimes people that created scientific, unforgettable things people that created artistic, unforgettable, glorious things, people that gave birth to life, people that, get, get, that made charity and other things, they did things in which there is a return, and the return is the contentment, is this grace of knowing that you have done something divine, moral, ethical, and this is a contentment in itself. And then, unfortunately, there is the fact that many, many human beings, they get blinded by Maya, by the universal illusion, and they put enthusiasm in things which give nothing. That means, I don't want to give you the answer for that one, do your own judgment. But for example, if somebody built the Eiffel Tower in Paris, 
you can bet that the engineer that designed it and the people who put the money and the effort in that, they had an enthusiasm. They were glowing with enthusiasm and they said, let's create in Paris, France, a landmark which a hundred years from now will be visible and astonishing. Obviously, those people believed that they are doing some great deal of something. Ask yourselves the question, when those people died and went to their judgment day, was there any bonus card for them for having built the Eiffel Tower? Did it really serve their soul anything? Is that not just a bourgeois materialistic thing in which basically it's wasted effort? If you would have paid those 300 workers that build the Eiffel Tower to meditate two hours per day, here is the salary for a day, you sit and meditate or pray two hours, not eight hours, two hours per day. Wouldn't the whole world have been more benefited? Wouldn't they all have been more? France wouldn't have had an Eiffel Tower. And then everybody says, so what? Therefore, very often human beings put interest in Olympic games, in showing off, in doing this and that, and then you can ask yourself, why? Why so many hours of work, so much money, so much enthusiasm, so much soul put into things which a thousand years or a hundred thousand years from now would mean anything? But here, of course, the materialistic skeptics would say, so what do you think that your prayer or meditation will make any difference 100,000 years from now? Yes, that is precisely the difference. Spiritualists believe that 100,000 years from now, your hours of yoga practice will still mean something and will be with you. And the fact that you build a house or that you dug a pond, or that you did this or that, they won't mean much, if anything, whatsoever. Thus, the question is, what should we invest time, money, soul, enthusiasm, heart into, so that we yield something out of it? I said there are people who say, you lived your life for nothing if you did not make a child, for example. But now try to think about the mother of Jack the Ripper. She did make a child. And what a bastard of a child that was. If she would have drowned it when it was a baby, the world would have been benefited from the non-existence of Jack the Ripper. And that is why I say, even when you delude yourself with the thing that I'm going to invest my soul into creating a child, yeah, but if that child becomes a serial killer and a bastard and a demon and a Satanist and something, you have actually polluted the world with the product of your womb and maybe you should have refrained from it. That means it's not enough to just biologically create a child. You create a child and you have to take care that you groom it into becoming a blessing for the world and not a curse for the world. So what I'm saying here is, therefore, this is very important. The fourth statement is to know the moral precepts and not to apply them to transcend the obscuring passions. Hum humanity 
is 99.99% blinded by obscuring passions. People think that they showing off, showing something that you are smarter than your neighbor, that your child is more beautiful than the child of your brother or sister, that you do this, that you have money, that you have power, that you build the Eiffel Tower or the pyramids of Egypt or whatever, it makes a difference. And these are obscuring passions, according to the Tibetan gurus. You are simply blinded by the Fata Morgana, by the dream, by the Maya, by the glamour of the world. And you think that by doing something you will make a difference. And think of it. I don't need to tell you what is what. But always think in this way. A thousand years from now, what will be the importance of this or of that, then you are going to put things. What about 10,000 years from now? What, then you can put things into perspective by comparing everything in the light of eternity, in the light of long term. And that is why one has to transcend the obscuring passions. The problem is that people stay and don't do. We live in an island for example, where people used to work very hard. This was one of the poorest parts of Thailand. Until some 20 years ago and more, tourism came by. And then anybody that had some land on the beach suddenly became bungalow owner, resort owner, and the money started pouring in. Today, an island like this is making part of the privileged communities in Thailand where people are rich. It's almost impossible to hire a local person to work in a restaurant, in a resort. Most of the people that are hired on this island, they are either coming from the northeast of the country where people are very poor, or from Burma or other similar places. There are Farangs who come to work here, but the locals don't because the locals are swimming in money. And then what do they do? They organize bullfights, cockfights. I know local people that in one night lost tens of thousands of baht playing poker. Because when people have nothing to do with their time, they get bored. Boredom is the second biggest trouble for human beings. Look at the lives of the human beings. You have to always have circus when narrow appeased the Romans after like a bastard he burned Rome or a part of it to the ground and many people died because of his schizophrenic experiment Rome near Nero started spreading some lies that other people were the authors of the fire and then he appeased Rome by giving them free food and games games in the Colosseum where people were being killed from the time of Nero, there is the Latin expression panem et circense, which means bread and circus. To rule the masses, you need to give them bread, because first of all, people are like animals. If they don't eat, their blood sugar goes low and they start biting. They become ferocious. So the first thing is feed them. And the second thing is as important, give them circus. If people are not entertained, then they start going frantic and doing things. You ask yourself, why do people keep watching television, 
soap operas, shows, all sorts of stuff all the time. You see that the manipulation uses lots of entertainment. Entertainment is essential to keep people confused and blinded and busy with other things because people are very easily getting bored. Getting bored. I met people saying, I would like to have a child so I don't get bored anymore. Like they didn't want to have children for the sake of creating something sacred on the face of the earth. They didn't want to have chil they did want to have children because they were getting bored. They needed a living toy. That's what they needed. A child will take boredom. And then of course when the child goes when you are 18, then the parents are empty. The house is empty again and then you don't know what to do with your time and you are not in love anymore. The first enthusiasm of youth has 99% gone already and there the tragedies and the dramas are coming. What I'm trying to say here is that unfortunately people are blinded by passions. Passions. What to do? What to do? What to do? People need occupation all the time and when people, very few people would say, I have nothing to do, then let me meditate. I can sit and contemplate. If my life is very empty, then I can simply stare at the horizon and do open eyes and meditation or something. No. People all the time try to fill the gap. For most people, the worst nightmare is to sit and to have nothing to do. While for the yogis, that's the perfect time to practice. And it's like, if you have nothing to do, that's an excellent time to actually do something. This is how people reverse priorities. It is a very, very big confusion. And the reason is what the Tibetans have called obscuring passions. Exactly as people are addicted to alcohol, tobacco, heroin, or something, exactly like this, people are addicted to anything else. Addicted to their television, addicted to their children, addicted to their name and fame, addicted to their work, addicted to a lot of things. And then, for example, Gurdjieff, who came to deal with the 20th century people, then he said, if you guys are so much workaholics in the West, then let's make clear, spiritual, war, spiritual activity is also work. Actually, Gurdjieff called his teaching and his practice the work. Like, it's the work, let's do the work. Because people were having the feeling that workers work, and spiritualists poke their nose and scratch their belly button like they are doing nothing. But Gurdjieff said this is also a work and it's actually the primary work. This is the work to be done. So if anybody is bored that you have nothing to do, then do the work. Get going with the work. It's a blessing. Even in a community like here on Kopangan. People constantly try to fill up their lives with little nonsense. They come to a place where there are no clubs, no cinemas, because most of the yoga people, they don't drink, or at least they don't drink profusely, 
and they don't do many other things, basically what would you do? And guess what? Study your own life and study the life of the people around. People actually spend a lot of time doing a hundred and one little nothings. And when you ask them, please come to the Seva day, they say, I'm busy. What the heck are you busy with in Kopangan? If I would know that you are doing eight to ten hours of yoga every day, then I would take off my head and would say, indeed, you are busy. You are working really hard. But almost nobody does that kind of work. And actually, everything else is around. Dilly-dallying, socializing, dipping your baby toe in a hundred little things. And funny, then the administration of Agama tells me, Swami, do you know that people are just gossiping with each other? How much can you lose from a course before you get kicked out of that course? And we have classes in which every member in that class misses exactly the amount of classes which they are allowed to miss without losing that level of study. It sounds almost like yoga has become an imposed ordeal. If people could miss one more class, they would miss it. Then why the heck are they coming to yoga? It's like some police brings them to yoga classes. That police is their own conscience, of course, because they say, that's why I'm here. But how incredible it is that people come to an island where is, there is no more, there is almost no collateral occupation. They come to yoga courses two times, three times per week. And even those, they are sometimes shirking. While there is nothing else to do on this island, and some people would say, boy, you can hear the grass growing, you know. It's like you are getting totally bored because there is nothing to do. Funnily enough, this is the obscuring passion. These are the obscuring passions. People, due to the obscuring passions, become passionate of a hundred thousand things. They become passionate of things. Instead of becoming passionate of the spiritual work. Which they diminish to the minimum. Like it's some obligation. Like it's some duty to do. But it's funny. It's not a duty. Actually people pay to come to the yoga courses. There is no Spanish Inquisition. Which grabs you by the collar. And brings you to the yoga courses then why miss the maximum amount of classes that you can afford to miss? This, is the, this shows you how in the life of everybody, especially of spiritual practitioners, how even there the obscuring passions are there. There were not so many obscuring passions in the life of Milarepa. He just went somewhere alone on a mountain, there really there was nothing to do. Either you start banging your head against rocks until your brain oozes out and you die, or you sit down and you do spiritual practice. Either you lose your mind, going crazy and started talking to the trees or to the rocks, or you do spiritual practice and you reach. This is the fantastic thing. And therefore, this statement about the obscuring passions is very important. People very easily develop addictions, crazy enthusiasm, passions, weird hobbies for things for which St. Francis of Assisi or Rumi or Milarepa 
they wouldn't have paid a dime. They wouldn't have paid a second of attention in their lives. And it's not because you or you or anybody is guilty. It's simply because of not paying attention to this. The mind is a crazy monkey. It constantly tends to create obscuring passions, which are like weeds in a field. If you are a gardener or a farmer, you constantly have to weed. If you are farming for 50 years, for 50 years you have to weed that field because the weeds are the most persistent, stubborn thing that exists. And although you weed mercilessly, they keep coming back. Those are the obscuring passions. The obscuring passions are the product of the monkey mind, which would do anything, exception made of what is relevant. What is relevant gets left last, and all sorts of insignificant things, they are promoted like, I have to do this, I have to do this, I have to do that. But when you ask yourself the question, what, which one will be more important 100,000 years from now, then your monkey mind gets angry and starts, yeah, stop coming with that, you are a fanatic. And you can't think like, yes, you can think like that. That's exactly how Milarepa thought. That's exactly how the great ones thought. Like creating priorities in your life. You cannot go maybe 100%, but even if you start making 10% priorities in your life, then many, many things will change. Finding time for those things. So, what is the cure for transcending the obscuring passions? To know the moral precepts and not apply them. That's how you transcend them. If people would apply non-violence, truthfulness, no theft, brahmacharya, aparigraha, very important, detachment, purity, contentment, tapasya, self-study, and ishvara pranidhana, then people would defeat, they will transcend the obscuring passions. That's one of the reasons for which yama and niyama are created. They give you a model of the world in which if you live according to yama and niyama, okay, nobody is perfect. But if you give at least to a large extent according to yama and niyama, then you live in a way in which there are no obscuring passions. And Tibetan yoga says, to know them and not to apply them you are like a diseased man carrying a bag of medicine. The medicine has been given to you. Use yama and niyama to transcend the obscuring passions. Not using them, you cannot make anybody responsible for your failure or for your stagnation because you are like a man carrying a bag of medicine and not using it when it would be opportune and required. Number five goes a little bit into the same direction. The fifth of the grievous failures. To preach religion and not practice it is to be like a parrot uttering a touching poem. And this is a grievous failure. This is again a biting sense of humor. Can you imagine a parrot uttering or 
saying, pronouncing a touching poem, a touching poem, not just a poem. It's a touching poem, and then a parrot says it. And everybody is laughing their heads off because it's obvious that the parrot has no feeling and no understanding of what is being said there. Does the parrot get anything from uttering a touching poem? It, it makes it even more ridiculous. If a parrot would recite an average poem, it's like, okay, you can teach a bird to say anything. But if a parrot recites a touching poem, it's double as ridiculous. It makes it preposterously ridiculous precisely because of the contrast. The same thing is said to preach religion and not to practice it. The father of Gurdjieff, who apparently was a very ironic, skeptical man, taught young Gurdjieff, if you want to lose faith, go and live with a priest. And that's the most sure way to lose faith. And in Orthodox Christianity, there is even a proverb in the countryside which says, do what the priest says, not what the priest does. And there are many, many proverbs which attend to the same thing. There is one which says, the shoemaker has holes in the soles of his shoes. Like out of the whole village, the shoemaker fixes shoes for everybody, but his own shoes are in a pathetic condition because he doesn't pay attention to it because he is negligent about it. To preach religion and not practice it is to be like a parrot uttering a touching poem, and this is a grievous failure. There is a biting sense of humor. It's like to compare religious preachers with that. For example, when Francis of Assisi started preaching the message of Jesus, he said, didn't Jesus say that you should live like the birds of the sky, not sowing and not farming and not weaving and not... Then how can I preach the message of the Jesus in part? Then I'm a hypocrite. And then Francis of Assisi went out of the rich, greedy Italian community in which he was living, who were ready to commit murder, to kill for money and for wealth. And he went to live alone in poverty and all that because he felt that thus he was not like a parrot reciting a touching poem. He felt he was not preaching something which he was not doing. That is why this is a very biting irony by which the Tibetans greet the theory without the practice. Don't preach something if you don't do it. Today, there are so many Christian preachers that preach the words of Jesus and they have been discovered to have tens of millions of dollars in bank accounts and fly private jets and live a life of total luxury and all of it is in the name of preaching religion but actually it leads to a super rich lifestyle. That many people have considered that, you know, like you preach, but you don't do. If you choose the path of Jesus, then represent the path of Jesus. If you preach celibacy, practice celibacy. If you preach Tantra, practice Tantra. Whatever you preach, live according to it. Be 
exactly like Mahatma Gandhi said, be the change that you want to see in the world. You cannot be violent and preach non-violence. And the list could go on endlessly. There are so many hypocrite preachers of religion today which are not practicing it. And Tibetans have been aware of this 500 years ago when in Tibetan culture things were way, way more determined and strict. And they give to it a very ironic image. You are like a parrot uttering a touching poem. And therefore, it's all more, the more ridiculous. Number six. The giving in alms and charity of things obtained by theft, robbery or deceit is like lightning striking the surface of water, and this is a grievous failure. This is not so ironic, but it's still an image of uselessness. What happens when the lightning is striking the surface of the water, like on an ocean or on a lake? Answer, nothing. Striking lightning, striking the surface of water, has zero visible effects. Therefore, here the Tibetans not, don't use so much the irony as much as a very clear image. If you try to give alms and charity of things obtained by theft, robbery or deceit, that's simply totally useless. It will have zero results. There are people that do business. That business is to a large extent deceit robbery or theft. Some people are looking at the wealth of people that created things like Microsoft Windows and other such things and they say, wait a second, this person started with theft. Like you see a movie like the movie about the creator of Facebook and you see that the creator of Facebook was condemned by the court to pay tens of millions of dollars in compensation because he actually stole it. And then the same creator of Facebook, today, no doubt, he is a gentleman, a North American gentleman, practicing charity. That charity is utter nonsense and uselessness, says Tibetan yoga. Karmically, it's like the lightning striking the water. It has no effect, it's no charity, it's only a show for the fools, and because the whole thing is based on deceit, robbery, and theft. You cannot create something on that. There are so many rich British families that created their money with the East India Company by basically deceiving the Chinese in the opium wars and those and those. And now you go into Debenham and Peabody and on Oxford Circus, all sorts of big malls and so on. They are all built on theft. On theft from colonies, on theft from aboriginal nations, on theft of land, of produce, of other things, on deceit. And those people are doing great charities. Tibetan yoga says that's just a game of appearances and it looks good 
but there is no karmic benefit, there is no spiritual anything to it. That is why Tibetans would divide, define that we live in a world of great hypocrisy, where big concerns, big multinational corporations, they steal and steal and deceive and deceive and exploit and exploit, and then very generously they offer things in donations, in charities, in alms, in this. Those alms and charity are just taken from blood money and from theft and other similar things, and they don't mean anything. It's like the lightning striking the surface of water. It's just a game of appearances. Number seven, which is pungent and it brings up some bitter issues. The offering to the deities of meat obtained by killing animate beings is like offering to a mother the flesh of her own child. And this is a grievous failure. Here it's not a sense of humor. Here it's a cruel comparison, sharp Tibetan way, like nobody can imagine that offering to a mother the flesh of her own child, the mother would be pleased in any way. Therefore, a deity receiving the flesh of an animate being cannot be pleased because in the scale, in the ladder of things, the deities are like the protectors of the lower fields of life. It is considered that somehow human beings are supposed to be like the king of the animal realm. There are so many ancient Jewish stories from the ancient Jewish prophets, stories from the Christian mystics having lived in the desert, and others in which animals spontaneously behave like human beings are the nearest image of God. Animals take refuge to the human beings in times of emergency, in times of distress, like they would await from the human beings grace and protection. It's like the human beings are almost like demigods, semigods to the animals. Unfortunately, of course, the human beings are very bitter demigods, very cruel demigods, which an animal takes shelter in you and you are sheltering a cow and a horse and a sheep and a pig and whatever you are sheltering and when the proper time for you comes they get slaughtered and sacrificed under the excuse that you have to eat them because otherwise you wouldn't survive and it's absolutely necessary and all that blah blah which eventually proves itself to be bollocks which eventually proves itself to be not real and not true. If you don't realize how it sounds with the cow and with the pig, try to think that in some parts of the world people are eating cats and dogs. Think about your pets. You have a dog that looks faithfully in your eyes and awaits protection, love from you, and one day you just skin it and boil it and eat it. It's not. It's exactly the same with all the other animals which are looking upon the human being as a protector 
but the human being has become a bad god, a bad deity, a cruel deity that offers death and pain, and today it offers extinction of whole species, it offers pollution, this destruction of the ecosystems and of the planet. We kill animals with large brains, such as dolphins and chimpanzees and others, just for the sake of eating them or for other terrible purposes. And thus, deities try to realize the gods are the protectors of the humanity. When you read Greek mythology, what are the gods? The gods are those that created human beings. Which gods? The gods of the Greek pantheon, Zeus and Hermes and those are stated very clearly in the Greek mythology, although those are not God. Those are deities, astrologic deities. They represent the influence of the planet. Zeus is, the, is Jupiter in astrology. And the gods have created the human beings. And the human beings often treated the gods badly. And the gods sometimes punished them educated them. There were whole communities and places that were not respecting the gods and then they had to undergo trouble. For example, Ulysses, Odysseus, from the Odyssey of Homer, he did the mistake carried by his arrogance of being a victor in the war of Troy. He did the mistake of offending, desecrating the temple of Neptune. And then Homer tells us that Odysseus had to spend 20 years to find his way back home, simply because Poseidon, in the Roman mythology Neptune, Poseidon or Neptune, got mad at him and decided to teach him a lesson. You don't want to get Poseidon mad at you, because you will be taught very bitter lessons. The gods have powers which human beings can't even fathom. Human beings say, what can the gods do? But the gods do things at the causal level, and then you fall and break your leg, or you have bad luck over bad luck, and you'll never realize that that comes from the gods. And thus people think that the gods, or in monotheism, God himself, are impotent. They are because nobody has seen God appearing with a stick, and punishing somebody with a corporeal punishment. People are extremely primitive in their mind, and they expect that our interaction with high beings like the gods is something physical. It's not. The gods don't need to materialize themselves and come with a stick and start beating you up to show you obviously that now you are getting a lesson from the gods. The gods can just blow a little bit something in the causal world, and the circumstances change completely, and from that moment on, your life goes to the dogs. In the moment when the devil comes to God in the Bible and says, let me, let me test Job, because Job is not as good as you think, and God gives the green light and says, okay, let's see what Job is made of. Then Job loses everything. He loses his family. He loses his wealth. He loses his health. He loses everything. How is it possible? Like nothing happened. 
God or the devil or one of the great deities didn't show up with a big stick and started punishing Job in a corporeal way. And yet, Job, Job's life is falling apart and is going down the drain. That is why, our in, in our interaction, please remember that the gods, the deities, the gods, not God, the one, that's way beyond, but even the gods, the deities from the causal world, they are credited with being the authors of humanity. They are the ones that have created humanity. And therefore, the gods are the protectors of humanity. Sometimes they can be cruel, just like the human beings can be cruel. And they are the protectors of the animals and of the nature and of the planet. And they feel responsible. Like whatever human beings do, the gods have a word to say in it. And they are way, way more powerful than all the human beings together can ever be. And thus, in all the traditions, it was known that it is a very stupid thing to provoke the gods when you don't have any clear proof that the gods do not exist or they are impotent, incapable of doing anything. You are playing the Russian roulette by just provoking the gods and no intelligent person would do that before having some evidence that you can play that game with impunity. And the Tibetans who are having this crazy rich pantheon of the Tibetan tantrism, of the Lamaistic Tibetan tradition, they say the offering to the deities of meat obtained by killing animate beings is like offering to a mother the flesh of her own child. A mother, if you would offer her the flesh of her own child, she would curse you. She would punish you. She will exert the worst revenge possible on you. The fact that out of ignorance a human being believes, I cannot eat, I cannot survive unless I eat some pork or some beef, that's just ignorance. That also has negative effects, karmic effects, but that is just ignorance. But to go beyond that, like it's not because I think it's necessary, but just additionally, I'm going to kill an entity and I'm going to offer it to a deity. What if the deity gets very angry and you in your ignorance are offering to a mother the flesh of her own child. That is because Tibetans were generally having this mixture of Mongolian and Chinese cultures. You know generally how the cultures are in Asia. There is a bit more cruelty and lack of consideration towards life because there is this strong Manipura in many Asian cultures. That's why in many Asian cultures you see people eating animals alive, torturing them, skinning them. They would eat dogs, they would eat this and that, which other people would not do. They would slaughter dolphins in Japan and so on and so on. There is an increased level of cruelty because of a very strong Manipura in many of those cultures. But then, 
the Tibetans were confronted with it. That means on one hand, Tibet claimed to be so spiritual. Tibet claimed to be so compassionate. The teachings of the Buddha were having such a high degree of popularity. So many men and women were practicing the path. And then at the same time, there were many people who were very manipuristic. And they did not, because Tibet was very difficult geographically, it was very difficult to cultivate crops in Tibet. People didn't have so much wheat and other things. Tibet was always on the borderline of starvation because food was so difficult to obtain and the climatic and geographic conditions were so harsh. And because of this, people very, very soon found the liberty to kill animals. Hunting was a very popular sport in Tibet. People simply said instead of playing the roulette of growing buckwheat and having a storm flatten it down exactly when you thought you were going to get a rich crop, then better you go and kill some yak or something, kill some animal, and then you have flesh for 30 days and you can eat it. And in Tibet it was cool and you could store it and all that. Thus, there was a lot of meat eating and a lot of manipuristic cruelty in Tibet. And when you read Tibetan stories of Milarepa and many others, they constantly had to fight with this. They would go to some part, to some village, and there everybody was meat eating and very Manipura-like thing. And then these people had to come, please, please, in the name of the Buddha, please stop killing animals, demonstrate you are real Buddhists, and let's do this and let... And Manipura, people will say, yeah, right, there's another parasite of a lama, you know, another, you don't produce agriculture, you don't breed, you don't do anything, and you are just a parasite eating our food, and now you are telling us not to hunt. What can you give? They would bargain with the lamas. They would simply say, give us this and this, make a miracle, walk on water, heal the whole village, do something, and then maybe we stop hunting animals. Like, they would be very arrogant. It was very difficult to preach religion in Tibet because the receivers, now we say, oh, Tibetans were very faithful. It's not true. Tibetans were very manipuristic and very cruel and very demonic and very egocentric and doing pretty much what they wanted. And it took a lot of spiritual incentive and it took a lot of great spiritualists to spiritualize Tibet and the Tibetans, because they are wild mountain people, very rough and very hard to convince and bend on cruelty. And when you read stories like the life of Milarepa or the life of Merit Intellect or so many others, you find out lots of rural warlords, people who are, whose life was based constantly on pride, arrogance, vanity, who killed without any compunction, who people who were, you know, just because you didn't give them respect or something, they would just kill you. And it was a very harsh land. When you read the explorer books of Miss Alexandra David Neal and others, you find out that Tibet was not at all a cozy place to be. And even travelers through Tibet, they could get robbed, killed, very, very easily. It was not at all a soft, hospitable place where you could go. And the Tibetans, therefore, were confronted with this strong Manipuristic people being 
having doing religion their own way. There is in India a story which shows you where that goes. It's a very, very beautiful and significant story which very few people understand. I think it refers to Tirumular, one of the great saints of the Tamil tradition in Tamil Nadu. If it is not Tirumular, it's one of the other Tamil saints. Anyway, it's one of the big saints of the Tamil tradition who, funnily enough, in India, even in India this thing was, with so many cultures mixed up in India, and they had the Muslims later who didn't care about the Hindu customs, such as vegetarianism and so on. They had tribal cultures, hill tribes, which didn't care about many of the Hindu orthodox rules, such as vegetarianism and the caste system and all that. And thus, even in India, even India is a country that has lots of fire and lots of Manipura, not as much as Tibet, it's true, but still there is some, and that's why in India you find lots of violence, lots of robbery, lots of aggression of different kinds, because it's a fiery place. And again, in Tibet it was even more so. And even in India, here is a story on the borderline of the tantric environment. In Tamil Nadu, they were fanatic Shaivas. It was the Shaiva Siddhanta tradition. And there they were really committed. It's one of the most Shaiva places of whole India. And this Tirumular, or what he, whatever his name was, he was a worshipper of Shiva. And his only way to worship Shiva was... And you can say this is ignorance and he was never taught this. This, was, this man was a hunter. And out of the hunt, out of the game that he was producing, he was taking a part of the game and he was bringing it to the temple and offering it to the Shivalinga. According to this statement, that's a horrendous mistake. On the other hand, Shiva is not just a deity. In Shaiva Siddhanta, Shiva is just the name for God. So this is not a deity. This is something much bigger than a deity. This is the one cosmic consciousness. This is the ultimate. And the ultimate is way beyond the level of the deities in the meaning that it can go to a redemption course and the universal consciousness will compassionately look upon Tirumular and say this ignorant, primitive caveman of a hunter called Tirumular is doing a blasphemy. It's a sacrilege that he brings in the temple flesh to offer it as an offering to the Shiva Lingam. But on the other hand, he loves me, would say Shiva in his own forum, in his own conscience. And because he loves me, I have to find a way to redeem even him. I am saying this because some people would say, yes, so it's possible. Tirumular became a great saint. But listen to the continuation. Because there is a proverb which says that every bird dies singing in its own language, in its own style. Like a nightingale dies singing nightingalish and not some other style. That means everybody has to go on its own line. Tirumular was bringing flesh to the temple. And of course he couldn't do that in the daytime. Because the Brahmins and the priests of the temple would have lynched him. It was a desecration of the temple where no animal is killed. That somebody would come and bring a bleeding piece of flesh. And 
horror of horrors, place it in front of the Shivalinga as an offering. So Tirumular, like a bandit, like a criminal, he was coming in the night and doing his forbidden, his pagan Shiva worship. And the priests were pissed to death because now and then in the morning they found remains of blood and flesh on their holy Shivalinga and they had to sanctify the whole temple again because some terrible odious person had been in the night and committed blasphemy. So Tirumular, out of his ignorance, comes and offers the flesh. And one day he reaches to his test. But his test, other people have not been submitted to this test. He is a nightingale that dies playing nightingalish, singing nightingalish. Like he is given a test on Manipura, like for a hunter. Jesus says it in another way. He that lives by the sword shall perish by the sword. It's you choose. If you want to be treated by God gently, give gentleness and live gently. You cannot live roughly and in a condemning, aggressive way and expect God to give you mercy. God will give you something aggressive and that can be a path as well, but don't expect soft endings or to be treated with a gentle hand. Jesus says it, you shall be treated exactly in the same way in which you treat the others. Therefore, if you want mercy, please start giving mercy and not once or twice, constantly. You shall not reach mercy if you, if you are perfectionist and you demand that everybody should be perfect. At the judgment day, God will demand that you show perfection also. And if you haven't got it, Tough luck, you've just burned yourself into the hellfire, so you should have thought better of it before you regulated your life that way. And that is why Tirumular gives flesh, and then Shiva gives him a test, like for Tirumular. A gentle vegetarian Hindu would have not been submitted to this test. Tirumular comes to the Shiva Linga in the night to do one more of his offerings and there he sees with horror and of course we can presume it was just a delusion, just a delirium, just a supreme hallucination induced onto him by Shiva himself. He sees that the Shiva Linga, sometimes in India, the Shiva Lingas, they have the third eye depicted on them and then they have these three lines which the Shaivas draw on their forehead, sometimes horizontally, sometimes vertically. In Tamil Nadu it was horizontally. And then under them they are depicted the two eyes. So there is a small face depicted drawn on the Shivalinga with the two eyes, the three lines on the forehead and the third eye. And Tirumular sees with horror that his beloved Shiva that is symbolized by the Shivalinga is missing one eye. One of the two eyes on the Shiva Linga looks like it's been plucked out. And he's like, my God, Shiva, my God, my beloved Shiva, what happened to you? And then in his heart, there comes automatically the feeling, my God, somebody has 
pluck the eye of Shiva out, I shall give him my own eye. And then Tirumular, like a Manipuristic hunter, he plugs his own right eyeball out of the orbit and sticks it into the Shivalinga, like this is my offering. When it is to choose if I or God shall suffer from blindness, I choose to make myself blind, like I'm Sure. He was devoted to death. He was ready to do anything for Shiva, indeed. But what a nightingalish test. He who lives by the sword shall perish by the sword. He is tried in that way. If you don't want those kinds of tests, don't, don't live like Tirumular, please, because you are going to get his tests. So Tirumular plugs his own eye and sticks it into the Shivalinga thing, which of course is not possible, because the Shivalinga is made of stone, there is no orbit. It's like he lives a hallucination, and he tries to play it, and his eye is not good. Once you plugged it out, you damaged it. So it's just a metaphor, but Tirumular takes his eyeball and puts it there. And as he is ready to, to notice that he did the good deed of the day, he notices with stupor that the other eye of Shiva is also missing. And then the only solution you guess is for him to plug out his other eye and to give it to Shiva. But then he realizes that if he plugs the other eye, he will get blind. And he will not know where to plug the eye. Because he will be blind and then he will be in agony and he would fumble. And then Tirumular puts his foot on the Shivalinga where the eye is to be able to find it blind, like he meant business. He puts his foot on the Shivalinga, keeping so so he knows that's where the eye is, and then he prepares to take out his second eye. Like this guy was prepared to go the full Monty. And in the moment when he's prepared to plug his own eyes, then out of the Shivalinga, Shiva materializes in front of him and says, Although you sacrificed meat and all that, I'm pleased in you. You really love me. You really are my own, and so on. And Tirumular becomes an enlightened being, and he becomes one of the great saints of the Tamil tradition. It is possible to sacrifice meat after all, but you will have to live by the sword and die by the sword, and it's not recommendable. And that is why the Tibetans recommend a sattvic lifestyle. Do not subject yourself to this. Do not accept Human, sacri uh, human sacrifices, even those were practiced in Bengal, do not accept animal sacrifices. The offering to the deities of meat obtained by killing animate beings is like offering to a mother the flesh of her own child, and this is a grievous failure. People ask themselves, but why do people in some parts of India and Tibet still practice animal sacrifices? That's because there exist very low traditions. There are low tantric, shamanic, witchcraft traditions in which people do not address the deities. It is exactly like somebody comes with a dirty package with a bread which is wrapped in an oily piece of paper, dirty, and you want to offer the produce of your oven. You have just baked bread and you want to offer it to, let's say, the Prime Minister of Thailand. First of all, you will never have an audience directly with the Prime Minister of Thailand unless you are very, very, very lucky. And therefore, all you can do is to give your oily piece of bread wrapped in paper 
to an assistant of the Prime Minister who promises, I shall forward your gift to the Prime Minister. It is exactly what's happening with many of the things, like many people think that they are offering things to the cosmic powers. But you never reach to offer things to the cosmic powers. Fortunately, every cosmic power looks like a pyramid. There is Kali on top of the pyramid. She has the two forms, Badra Kali and Dakshina Kali, like her two deputies, like two facets of Kali. Then from there, there are 16 attending deities. They have other, it's like a retinue in a regal, in a royal court like a whole hierarchy and when you knock at the door and say here is my humble gift to Kali somebody says we shall pass it on to Kali and she will be told about your gift that is of course not the case if you work with the Bija Mantra and with the Yantra of Kali which are the very being of the goddess but working with the Bija Mantra and with the Yantra, you have to do Laya Yoga, visual and auditory. You have to do Samyama. And only somebody who did years of meditation can intimately fuse with Kali. That's why in India, the people who are worshipping Kali, they keep putting things on the threshold of the palace of Kali, but they give it to assistants of Kali. And in this way, there are lower hierarchy entities, myriads of them, which accept different sacrifices. And sometimes, those, the hierarchy, goes to very low levels, because there will be people like Tirumular. There will be people like Tibetan hunters and others that will make very unsattvic, unclean, unpure presence, although their intention may be good, like their heart can be good, and say, this is what I learned from my grandfather, that you have to offer a goat to Kali. Here is my goat to Kali. It's exactly like the Jews who are offering little lambs to be burned on an altar, and Jesus told them, what does God need little lambs? Better give to God your soul. God will be much more happy if you surrender to God and you give your life and your soul to God than giving to God some lamb because that's witchcraft. That's a process of magic. It's exactly used in the Vedic fire and all those things to burn something to send it to the gods. And that is why, please be aware that there exist low traditions, but the low traditions are exactly that. They are low traditions. Between making an effort of offering a goat to Kali with 30 hours of meditation and offerings and this, and offering to Kali your heart and your soul with 30 hours of Laya Yoga and Trataka on her Yantra, there is absolutely no comparison. And if you would ask Ramakrishna or anybody of that class, it is obvious what they would answer to what is preferable. That is why the Tibetan yoga is very clear because obviously there were animal sacrifices and some hunters and other people who killed animals thought that by offering some of their rich food and something to the gods and goddesses, they are going to appease them and please them and then your own desire to eat pork 
or to eat beef or to eat goat is going to be appeased because you make friends with the goddess. If I share with the goddess, then I can be greedy of animal flesh because ultimately the point is that most of these animals which are sacrificed don't think that they are burned or thrown to the ditch. Then they are cut and ate. And then people have the excuse, yeah, but it's from some yagya, it's from some sacred, we wouldn't eat it otherwise. And all that stuff, when actually things are completely the other way. So, uh, this is very, very, it is touching a very sensitive point, because we are constantly in touch with traditions, and especially we living in the tantric world, we have seen and heard of a lot of things. Please remember that there exists a metaphysical tantra which comes from Abhinava Gupta. There exists a sattvic tantra like practiced by Ramakrishna and by Aurobindo and Shivananda. And then there are many rajasic and tamasic forms of the tantric traditions in which they address to lower realities and... I'm not saying that they might not work in some very twisted or convoluted way, but then you take the path of Tirumular. You live by the flesh, you shall die by the flesh. You live by the sword, you shall die by the sword. That's why, in my humble opinion, it is better to avoid confronting yourself with such things, because... As the Tibetans say, it's like offering to a mother the flesh of her own child. You are going to get some serious backlash from it. And it's a grievous failure. Let's have one, one more and then conclude for tonight. Number eight and the last for this evening satsang. To exercise patience for merely selfish ends rather than for doing good to others is to be like a cat exercising patience in order to kill a rat. And this is a grievous failure. Again, biting sense of humor. Like a cat is putting so much patience into catching a bird or a mouse or something. What's the big deal? The Tibetans make fun. It's like, right, you are like a cat exercising patience. Is that patience going to reward you? Patience here is translatable as tapas, because you need a lot of patience to do tapas. To do tapas, to reach a selfish end, rather than for doing good to others. Tibetan yogis say, if you would exert patience to do something good for others, such as the patience of Mother Teresa, the patience of Buddha, who had lots of years of patience trying to organize and succeeding to organize the next, the future Buddhist community. To have patience like Mahatma Gandhi, even enduring many years in prison and patiently, patiently going to a great goal. That's spiritual patience. To have the patience to live 30 years in a cave like Milarepa, and knowing that one day you shall cleanse your karma and you shall reach nirvana. And you are going, because Milarepa is told by his sister, 
Milarepa, are you crazy or somebody? Get down of that mountain and come to the city. Come city. It was just a terrible Tibetan village. But the city it was a city or a village compared to nowhere on a mountain. So they tell him, come down. And in one of his songs, in the songs which follows, Milarepa, who always answered in poems and devotional songs, Milarepa says, no, I have to stay here to burn my karma for having done black magic and in the process to save the soul of my sister, of my mother, of my father. Like Milarepa says, I am patient for my mother, for my father, for it's not only about me. I am trying to do something for others. There is always this dimension, especially in the Bodhisattva vow of the Mahayana tradition and of the Tibetan tradition, that you should not seek enlightenment only for yourself, but you should seek a greater good to benefit the world as well. And thus Tibetan yoga would say, if you use lots of patience to do good to others, praised be you. Praise be to you. You are indeed tapas, patience. Patience, as I told you so many times, it's very important in spirituality. There are people who did not try Agama for 12 years to see if it gives them states of Samadhi, although they know that some people that have been in Agama for 10 years plus, they did receive states of Samadhi, but people are impatient. They have done three, four years of Agama, and then they say, let's do something else. This is impatience, constantly. In spirituality, there needs to be patience. You need to commit yourself to a practice, not to jump like a monkey from one place to another, because without a certain degree of patience, it's not an inhuman patience. It's not, a, but at least without some degree of patience, it's not really possible to accomplish anything great. I was watching a year ago a documentary given to me by one of the pupils from Agama about this man who put a wire between the Twin Towers in New York in the time when they still existed, some 20 years ago and more, and he walked on a wire between them. He put a cable and he walked for one hour and he paralyzed the circulation in Manhattan because nobody had ever seen anything like this. And then the police made it impossible for any other freak to repeat that stunt again. He was the first and the last man who walked on a wire between the Twin Towers. A Frenchman, a Leo guy, totally obsessive totally maniacal. He actually dreamt to go on the Twin Towers from the time they were building them. In the 60s or whenever that was, it took him 15 years to prepare the walking between the Twin Towers. There was so much logistics and know-how. He and friends of him flew from France to New York several times over eight years or so measuring, preparing discreetly so that the police and others won't know that they are going to do this like really a project of a magnitude just for a dude to stretch a cable between two buildings and to walk on it. Like with that energy, maybe he could have stopped the dolphins from being slaughtered. Maybe he could have put that energy in the service of a better cause. But my God, 
what a perseverance that man had. What a one-focused mind. Like when they were building the Twin Towers, this French maniac knew one day I'm going to walk a wire between those two. They were not even built, and he already had figured out that he was going to walk between them. This is tapasya. This is perseverance. To really keep, if a man could dream about walking between the Twin Towers for 15 years plus, why shouldn't a human being dream about reaching immortality for at least 12 years and giving it the whole hand, really focusing on it? If this man would have put the same kind of passion in enlightenment, he would have been today an enlightened being. It is like in the Tibetan movie Samsara, where there is a theme taken from Indian Himalayan spirituality, where the wife of this dude, who is very obsessed by his own sexual life and this, she says, if you would have loved Shiva as much as you have desire for me, you would have been enlightened by now. This is the obscuring passions that you can't love Buddha, but you can be totally infatuated with the yoni of your wife, or with building the Eiffel Tower, or with walking between two towers, or with a hundred thousand other things, which ultimately in a hundred thousand years will mean nothing. So back to our story, people exert lots of patience. The great author, the first one who made a PhD on yoga, Professor Eliade, Mircea Eliade, said in one of his books, he said it is Incredible to think that to achieve these spiritual things, it takes sometimes less effort and time than it takes to fulfill mundane goals. Like if any one of you would want to build a political career and to become a senator or to become the president of your country or something like this, you would have to control yourself not to do foolish things, not to have a decomposed sexual and social life. You'd have to be careful about every word you publish on Facebook. You'd have to stay away from compromising your own reputation and cultivate a very clean image. And you would have to be active, solar, involved, pushy, making compromises, conspiring, doing all sorts of manipulation. You'd have to push your way through the system 20, 30 years aiming only to this, that one day you're going to be prime minister or something. And then a thousand years from now, nobody will give a rat's ass on you having become the prime minister in some god. What was the prime minister of Portugal 25 years ago? Does any one of you know? Nobody knows. These are nobodies. You know, but we still remember Jesus and Buddha. This is why I say, even if you go for name and fame, what is very few people of mundane power remain mentioned in history, name and fame doesn't really last. Which were the names of the pharaohs of Egypt? Exception made that you know that there is a mummy of Ramses and Tutankhamun, because these are archaeological relics, for the rest, who remembers the names of the pharaohs? They thought they were God walking the face of the earth. Today, nobody gives a rat's ass on the pharaohs of Egypt and how big they thought they were 
in their day. And thus, what I'm saying here is people are very, due to the obscuring passions, people are ready to exert lots of patience or tapas for merely selfish ends. Take so much patience to raise a child if you want to raise it responsibly. Maybe it's easier to become enlightened than to raise a child. And yet, most people choose to raise children, not to reach enlightenment. It's not that raising children is bad, but if you put them in proportion, if you are going to die 20 years from now, and you would have two plates on the table, and one of them says you are an enlightened being, and one of them says you have raised a child, what would you choose? Most people say, if I would be in my full capacity of intelligence, I would take the enlightenment, because then you can have 15 children if you are enlightened, if you really want afterwards. Afterwards, says Jesus, everything can be given to you hundredfold. You reached enlightenment, and then you want to become a multimillionaire. Become a multimillionaire, but at least be an enlightened multimillionaire. Put first enlightenment and then richness, not the other way around. Thus, this Tibetan statement is also quite pungent. It says to exercise patience for merely selfish ends. How much patience people have to put in building up, building up the things of life. For selfish ends, rather than for doing good to others which would be the real thing, that's what Dalai Lama says, if you live your life and you are not trying to do good to others, you are living an empty life. So it's a very Buddhist point of view, but of course not only Buddhists would say that, is to be like a cat exercising patience in order to kill a rat. It's so minimizing, it's so ridiculing, you know. People want to cross the Twin Towers, people want to become Prime Ministers, People want to build pyramids and Eiffel Towers. And the Tibetan yogis say, you are like a cat trying to catch a mouse. It's a very primitive thing. You are just exerting a wonderful force, focusing, perseverance, to reach what? To reach what? To which purpose? For what purpose? What will it matter in a thousand years, in ten thousand years? in a hundred thousand years. This is where you can see that people are not thinking from their immortal soul, which always thinks in terms of eternity. You are just thinking in terms of the physical body that always thinks here and now. In these 50 years which I've got to live on the surface of the earth, what can I do to please myself and to have the impression that I've done something? This is blindness. And that's why the Tibetans use an animal comparison. They say you are like a cat catching a mouse. That's just instinct. You are living at the level of the animal. Of course you have the instinct of doing something very visible. Everybody does. Look around. Everybody, exception made the people that had given up completely, everybody that has some ambition in the society is trying to do something. The, le the least you can do, have a beautiful, healthy child. At least you can say, I've done a beautiful, healthy child. It's like you have done it. 
while you are just a co-author of it, because your child is a divine spirit which doesn't come from you. You just gave it a body, ultimately, and then an education and others. But what I'm trying to say here is, we often extol instincts and animal accomplishments like that's something which makes a difference. And Tibetan yogis are a bit cruel, they are a bit manipuristic, and they give a cold shower to people who live into this illusory that, oh yeah, don't tell me, I just want to have this beautiful idea about myself and my life. Tibetan gurus are a bit impolite, politically incorrect, and they give you the cold shower about it. And they say, you have used lots of patience to fulfill this and that. Ultimately, you are like a cat that catches a mouse. Ultimately, it's not a big deal. It's not a big accomplishment. It's just an animal making a living. It's just an animal earning its daily food. as not a big deal to it. This is refreshingly putting things into perspective. So we stop at the statement number eight, and next time, whenever that next time will be, uh, I think next Thursday we still have um, satsang, we will continue with number nine and the others. Now being late enough, let us remain for a couple of minutes in interiorization, allowing things to settle down, to sink in and settle down, and then we part for tonight. And that will do. Let us stop for now. Namaste to all of you. Thank you for joining us in the satsang. With this we have finished for tonight. <laughs>